0: So Isaiah 48, in in 47, the Lord had said to Babylon that uh, they were going to be punished because of the way that particularly they had treated Israel, but just the way they had behaved with the power and the authority that God had given them. They showed no mercy and uh, trusted in sorcery and evil is going to fall upon them and no one's going to be capable of saving them. In, uh, chapter 47. So 48 you now uh, see several things revealed about God's work in the life of the believer and the way that it refines us and changes us and also uh, the promise of this coming Messiah and um, you know what he's going to be and what he's going to do in some specific situations. So 48.1 says hear this O oh, house of Jacob, who are called by name, the name of Israel and have come forth from the well springs of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness, for they call themselves after the holy city in Jerusalem and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. So he begins with the confrontation over, you know, t- tr- literally taking God's name in vain. Um, you know, they they have all of these things. Oh, we're children of Israel. We're sons of Jacob. We, you know, come from the city of Jerusalem. They have all of this, uh, you know, worldly credential that they put forward. And in the end, of what the Lord is saying is, you're none of that. You're none of those things, uh, you know you have these names, you have these titles, but you put them on yourself in an empty way, and uh, you know he's the Lord of hosts who has to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, I have declared the former things from the beginning, verse three, they went forth from my mouth, and I caused them to hear it suddenly, I did them, and they came to pass so one more time the Lord is uh, pointing at the, you know, as far as credentials go, uh, he's pointing at prophecy and saying, you know, I've, long before things took place, I told you about them. It wasn't amongst your discussion. It wasn't amongst your thinking. It was mine. And then after I had spoken them, you know, you know a period of time later, whether it's a long period or short period, you know, suddenly I did them, And they came to pass. You know, God is putting the challenge out there. And I think that for us, you know, if you're tired of hearing that from me about, you know, the authority of God being, uh, you know, presented or displayed in prophecy, um, you know, look at what the Lord is saying about this and realize, you know, like we're all very accustomed to the idea and the sensation of prophecy in general. God is is telling us, this is is mine alone. I I don't even know how to put that in an illustration. is, Is there an automobile manufacturer that, you know, they have a particular feature that no one else has? And, you know, others claim to have something like it, but they're the ones that have it. God is saying, you know, all these other... You know, gods that you have even gone after as a nation, and all these belief systems—none of them do this. You know, we get the impression from you know the things we hear in our culture and the world around us. Like you know, I've described this many times before, like, like prophecies everywhere happens in all the religion. No, it doesn't. You know, and if it does, then God here is false again because he's saying, "No, only I do that. Nobody else does that. Nobody has the capacity to foretell." the future. I love the fact that he actually in, you know, Isaiah chapter 41 there, he actually puts it on the ability to tell the past also. The former things, the things that have taken place. And you'd think, well, good grief. I mean, we should at least be able to get that right. And we don't. You know, the argument over creation versus evolution, the ancient history of this world, you know, how did things begin? I love Ken Ham's approach. You know, these guys start spouting off about millions and billions or however long ago it was, and Ken will just say, were you there? Clearly not. So what's the evidence we're looking at? We're all looking at the same evidence. The reason that so many are wrong is because they come into it believing something before they ever look at the facts. Presupposition. The very thing they accuse us of. Oh, you just believe God did it. Darn right. I don't have any other approach to it, I'll tell you beforehand. Every single thing we look at, I'm going to look through the filter of the Scripture, and that's how I'm going to view that, right? Absolutely. And they act like, oh, well, we're above that. We don't do that. When we look at the evidence, we just look at it for the facts that it tells us. No, they don't. The Lord hangs His authority on this. I'm the one who can tell you about what is to come and then cause it to take place. Verse four, because I knew that you were an ob- you were obstinate and your neck was an iron sinew, and your brow bronze, even from the beginning. I have declared it to you before it came to pass. I proclaim it to you, lest you should say, "Oh, my idol." has done them. My carved image and my molded image have commanded them. The the circumstances to take place. Whatever God has prophesied, right, foretold before it takes place, he's the one that puts it out there and says that's going to take place. Most of the time, because what he says through prophecy is judgmental about those false gods, they would never agree. With God, right? Anyone who is a minister of Baal is not going to go around and prophesy the coming destruction of Baal. And then when it happens, God is putting twofold uh, fulfillment on it. One, I'm the only one that told you about it. And two, now look, it's taken place to the gods that you trusted in. Your destruction and the end has come. I've commanded it. They never even were able to imagine it. Verse 6. You have heard, see all this, and will you not declare? I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. Now, some of those things that he's declaring, we're going to see a little bit in this chapter, and then more in chapter 49, where he's talking about the millennial reign, And in particular, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So, you know, within these settings, he's saying, you know, I have these hidden things. He's going to talk specifically in the next chapter about the salvation of the the Gentiles. This is an Old Testament Isaiah reference. You know, those that, you know, study... These things you know, have the tendency to think like, oh, well, that was completely hidden and you know, not revealed at all until you come into the New Testament. Well, hidden from understanding, spoken by the prophets recorded in the Word of God so that when they take place, everyone's standing around going, well, my goodness, look at that. The Lord not, not only predicted it was hidden from our view. And now that it's been fulfilled, we can agree with the Scripture that God has declared this thing again. And not only his ability to tell, but even the ability to decipher what has been said and what's hidden. I did not know them. Verse 7, they are created now and not from the beginning. Before this day you have not heard them, lest you should say, of course I knew them. Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely you have long ago your ear was not open, for I know that you would Deal very treacherously, and were called a transgressor from the womb you're you're a sinful people, the nation of Israel, we're a sinful people, the church anyone who's been called by the Lord, we've been called out of the sinfulness we were born into, and in that, take for instance the issue of the Gentiles, right here are the people who've You know, studied the scripture most intently, looked for the promise and coming of God's fulfillment in the scripture, and then when Jesus finishes his ministry, death, burial, resurrection, ascension into heaven, guys like Peter are not even looking at the possibilities of the Gentiles coming into the church. It's not until he's gone to that house of Cornelius, preaches to them, they become Christians, That they're all left standing around realizing the things that the Scripture had to say about the coming day when the Gentiles would be saved. That's exactly what the Lord is saying in that last section we just read. I've declared it openly. It's been right there in plain view of all of you. And he removes the ability for them to be prideful because the answer was staring them right in the face. It's... Comical, embarrassing, when you've not only gotten really desperate about the thing you're looking for, but then you publicly announce it to everyone about, where is the thing? And somebody says, like, that one right in front of you? And you feel so stupid for the fact that not only was it right there the whole time, but now you've made a big stink about it and embarrassed yourself. They have rebelled against God, worshipped false gods. Simultaneously, he's de- declaring the future truth of what's going to be fulfilled. And then when it's fulfilled, they have no grounds to be like, Yeah, I knew that. I knew that was going to happen. They were completely blind to it. His own followers. you know, That example of the Gentiles in particular, they were baffled by that. It really floored the whole of the believing Community. Verse 6, you have heard, see all this, as we said, I guess we've read that. Um, verse 9, for my name's sake, I will defer my anger. I'm not gonna react, I'm not gonna bring punishment in order to save face myself, and for my praise I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. As he had said in the desert. He was you know, being inspired to do. Let's just wipe out the entire nation of Israel. And I'll take you, Moses, and we'll start over. We'll, we'll start building a godly nation starting with you. And Moses pleads the case for the nation of Israel. And God stops the process of destroying them. They have certainly, through their rebellion and through their casting off of God, they have certainly inspired their own annihilation. But God's grace, his you know, uh, long-suffering, his restraint has kept that from happening. Behold, I have refined you. So in the midst of this anger and this judgment that they have boiled up in God, through their rebellion through their sinfulness god is you know now referencing that you know heated strained relationship that they have created and saying we're going to use that to refine you We're use this in order to make you better behold i have refined you but not as silver i have tested you in the furnace of affliction i didn't try to melt you down. We're not talking a literal thing. He goes right to the explanation of the illustration, trials. I have brought you into trials and affliction for my own sake. For my own sake. Boy, when he's repeating it, you should pay attention, right? Verily, verily, truly, truly fallen fallen is Babylon. You know, here, you know, I'm saying this to you, so that you could pay attention for my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. What? Refine them. Why? Because if they remain, if we remain, the same sinful, stagnant people we were when we came to the Lord, then is the work of the Lord real? You know, whether it's real in general, is it real within us? This is the challenge the Lord is putting forward. I'm refining you to prove You're my children. For my sake I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. You're not going to walk away from this acting like, oh yeah, we we refined ourselves. We came to the realization of what we needed to do. And we began to behave in a way that was righteous. No, not at all. God pressed you into that place. I'm not going to share my glory with another. As they're going through these trials, right? you got to recognize what's being said here. This is as they're being carried away into captivity. That all of this is going to click in their minds. The realization that, oh, oh, oh God was serious. Oh, we're going to be slaves of another nation. Wow. They're hanging their harps at the trees as they depart, literally saying, well... No more joy in my life, so I won't need this harp anymore. Literally lying down their instruments of worship in a demonstration of, our nation's done. It's over. And that's where Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, comes through as the prophet says, Speaking for the Lord, I know... The thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Right from their experience, oh, we're being destroyed. God, on the other hand, is saying, nope, not at all. This is where we refine you. This is where we make you better. You're hanging your harps in the trees and saying, God's done with us. We are destroyed. It's over. And the Lord is saying, no, this is where we start. This is the beginning. Don't let anybody else try to speak for me. Don't let anybody else, you know, you, the group of you all mourning in your sorrow as you're going into captivity. You know, someone on the outside looking in, mocking you, saying, where's your God now, now that you're in this trial? Don't let anybody else speak on my behalf. God says, I know the thoughts I think towards you. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, that you might have a future and a hope. What future? What hope? Well, one without idolatry. Above anything else, that's what God is accomplishing here. Um, There are all kinds of other refining elements that are going on, but that idolatry thing, that's, that's what Babylon was all about for them. Oh, yeah. Idols. Okay, you know what? Let's send you to the land of idols. You're so into idols. You can't worship me. Let's put you right in downtown Idleville, you know, Babylon, where that's all you're going to see. And let's leave you there for, you know, 70 years while you realize what's going on. That verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, it's been used a lot. And it's, it's a great verse, but it has that sort of deep understanding of how they're in the midst of complaint and they don't understand their trial and they're listening to the voice in their head and all around them and God just says, wait, I'm the one that's doing this, I'm the one that's accomplishing this, so I'm the one whose voice you need to listen to for explanation. I know what I have planned for you. It isn't destruction. This isn't your end. I'm not bringing you through these things because this is your final punishment. Forty-eight, twelve. Listen to me, O Jacob in Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. And we've taken the opportunity in our study through Isaiah to point out that that's a confirmation of Jesus Christ's deity. He makes the same claim of, of being the first and the last. Well, there's only one first and only one last, and that's God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is the singular God. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. You know the the, the world, the earth, the creation, the universe, uh, the atmosphere. When God says something's going to be a certain way, that's how it turns out. He is the one who created these things. He can stand up. And say to the storm, peace be still, and it flattens out. God commands these things by his own power. 48.14, all of you, assemble yourselves in here. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I hope in your Bible some of them are not. Each one of these pronouns is capitalized, right? His, arm. You know, this is Jesus that's being referenced here. This is God the Father referencing the fact that Jesus is coming. So the veil starts to lift here as the Lord is beginning to reveal in this passage. And he does it all through the scripture. But in this passage, he's starting to lift the veil on the Messiah a little bit. And we catch some glimpses here as we move along. I, even I have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him in his way will prosper. The change to lowercase in this case is referencing Israel and Judah. So the Lord jumps back and forth as he describes Judah and then Israel. And you can see some of the differences uh, based on their conduct. So come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. Uh, From the time that it was, I was there, and now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. So this plan to bring the Redeemer uh, to Israel was not hidden, right? Right there in Genesis when the fall comes, the Lord announces that there's going to be enmity between the descendants of Eve and, uh, excuse me, the singular descendant of eve jesus and all of the descendants of lucifer or satan and the promise that he would crush satan's head in the process of being injured the bruising of the heel on the cross so from the beginning you know i have told you what was to come thus says the lord your redeemer the holy one of israel i am the lord your god who teaches You to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. So this idea of profit, that's uh, more spiritual than it is physical. If we aren't following the Lord, then we're going to reap the benefits. Whether there's ever some monetary value attached to that or not, uh, spiritually, uh, we will be successful when we follow the Lord, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants also would have been like the sand and the offspring of your body, like the grains of sand. His name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. So, you know, certainly personally, but the great picture nationally specifically for the nation of israel at this point as they're rebelling against the lord not walking in his commandments then they fall into judgment they've watched israel in the north uh, be taken into captivity and then thought that they had escaped that judgment and especially with the transference of power uh, to go from the assyrians over into the babylonian empire you know sort of like well there's a new sheriff in town so maybe we won't have any trouble with this guy and now here comes babylon and they're conquered also why because they did not obey the lord you know the the, the, the southern portion of israel you know, known as judah they experienced god's judgment in the process he wouldn't if you'd obey me i could have blessed you your children your descendants. You wouldn't have been cut off. 48.20 Go forth from Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing. Declare, proclaim this. Utter it to the ends of the earth, says the Lord. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And they did not thirst when he led them uh, through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed. Out. So he's, he's speaking forward to, they, you know, they haven't even gone into captivity yet, but they're going to go into captivity uh, under the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. So he's speaking forward to, you will eventually be released from that captivity and, uh, you know, be able to return into the land. Uh, but, you know, for now you're going to you know, be these people's slaves, essentially, uh but he then reaches back to their history and says, you know, just like with Moses, you're going to be provided for through the process. Uh, one of the things that was most upsetting uh, to these people is that when they were entering into the land, the prophets were telling them in Babylon as captives, the prophets were telling them, You need to settle down here. You need to even like marry and build homes and do whatever you can because you're going to be here. You are not going you you know, many of them had that strong uh, patriotism and they were like oh you know we're just going to be here for a little while <laughs> which is you know this is going to be an in and out project we we've, we've sinned and you know now God's going to punish you. we'll go home soon and you know 70 years are going to pass before they are finally released. So you know, the assurance that yes you're going to eventually be released, but uh, you know through the process, the Lord is going to take care of you the same way did Israel as they were wandering through the wilderness. You know the water and the rock. So there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. So there it is. It's not just you know a quib saying no rest for the wicked. It's scripture. There's no peace for the wicked. The beautiful thing is when we are made righteous in Christ, right? Without that, well, then we are the wicked. We we don't have God's grace covering us. Uh, no matter how well we're doing currently, we are the wicked. And uh, by his grace, we are no longer the wicked. So we get to experience the peace of God. A wonderful testimony there. 49. one. Listen, O coastlands, to me. So that's us, because here we are on the coast. So, you know. If you weren't paying attention previously, now you've heard it directly from the Lord. Here we are on the coastlands, far away, which is pretty much what he's saying. Uh, We have to pay attention. Listen, O coastlands, to me and take heed, you people from afar. So, well, there. Now we're in both categories, right? If you thought, no, that's not me. I'm not coastland. Well, you're definitely afar. You're a long ways off, not only physically, but also in time. A lot of centuries have passed This was said, but it still applies. Listen, O coastlands, to me and take heed you people from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb and from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. Actually, before the womb. It is accurate in the way that it's written. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, brethren excuse me, brethren, my glasses would be helpful. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. So the promise of his coming was before creation began. I say, well, Didn't that at least start with when the Bible was recording the promises of God? You're absolutely right. You're such a good class because that was before the foundation of time. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So as creation was being launched, the Word of God was there and his promises were intact. This coming of the Messiah promised from everlasting. 49 2. He had made my mouth like a sharp sword. Description of Jesus in both cases, in verse 1 and now, and in verse 2, you'll see things that sort of move around as far as description and who it applies to. But in particular, think of Jesus and Revelation that white sash and the golden. Band around his chest, feet like burnished bronze and hair white as wool, radiance like the noonday sun eyes like coals of fire, a sharp sword proceeds from his mouth that he slays all of his enemies with so here, as you're hearing uh, this description as the Lord is saying this about the redeemer, you know the uh, holy one and uh, his appearance for us it's important to recognize how jesus is being described in verse two in the shadow of his hand uh, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft in his quiver he has hidden me he said to me you are my servant O israel in whom i will be glorified then i said i have labored in vain i have spent my strength for nothing in vain yet surely my just reward is with the lord and my work with my god so if this is the messiah and some introduction to him here and his comments back the idea of his being this finely tuned weapon uh, that has its very specific purpose the Lord in this description of him there excuse me he makes that statement of how you know I've labored but it's basically empty well if you consider the beginning of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry and by that I mean the full three years you know what did it result in as far as Jesus goes And his being savior of the world. It was rejection and crucifixion. From the outside, you would look at it and think failure. You know, what Jesus did. From an earthly perspective, you would look at Jesus' ministry and think that did not come close. You You know, I'm talking about right then, right there, in the moment. None of, I'm not describing any of the fruitfulness that comes after that if you're just there here comes jesus born of mary raised and reared in israel begins ministry three years preaches heals performs miracles and then is crucified you can be left with well that was short-lived you know then consider the fruitfulness that comes this is what's being said about you know, might have been empty. You know, I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. Think about that for yourself, please. You know, when we're struggling, when we're frustrated, when we don't see the things happening around us that, You know, perhaps even absolutely should be happening. We're putting in the effort. We're sharing the gospel. We're scattering the seeds, and yet it just seems to fall on deaf ears. We don't see the. Look, you don't get rewarded from earthly things, the reward is in the hands of our God. You know, talk about the ultimate pay it forward. We're waiting for that day of fruitfulness. We're looking forward to Don't let the earth frustrate you, you guys. Those people you want to see come to the Lord, and it seems like every time you talk to them, all they want to do is argue with you. Maybe something like that's going on in your life. It's not in vain. We know know it from the Scripture. Know it experientially. Embrace that. You think about it, right? We're, We're on... The fruitful end of Jesus' ministry, you know, all these thousands of years of church growth and promises fulfilled, and we're watching the things happen in the news and in our own lives. I think the fruitfulness of the Lord has created—wow, that's some good stuff. Well, when you're frustrated with your current status, know and understand that that's how fruitfulness works. You plant now, you harvest later. It's coming. The fruitfulness is there. It's in the work of the Lord. Now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him? For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord my God, it shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore, preserve one of Israel I will also give you as a light to the gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth so all of this work that the lord is performing in this plan that he's had in place from everlasting and now named before he was born right because Jesus name was given to him by the angel that delivered it to Mary and Joseph you're going to name the child of Jesus, Emmanuel. God amongst us is going to be his title, his name, and his position. So, all of these things fulfilled, now I'm going to be a light to the Gentiles. The world misses that statement. Judaism misses that statement. The apostles miss that statement. Saul of Tarsus misses that statement completely. You know, the, the Lord comes to deliver this message to the Gentiles. A remarkable thing. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. Peter in the house of Cornelius, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, the Jews, who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Birth of the church. There's Peter in the home of Cornelius preaching and boom, Gentiles become Christians without without doing any of the Jewish practices. They they don't adopt. You know, I've heard preachers imply, "Oh, Cornelius was already essentially Jewish." He was a, no, he was a believer. He wasn't observing any of the Jewish law. He was a believer and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He received salvation. The birth of the church. Of course, Romans chapter 11, Paul says, For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. You know, this light that's going to shine amongst the Gentiles begins with Jesus, extends to Peter, then Paul, the preaching continues, and they come into the church. Romans chapter 11 verse 25, the ultimate expression of that, Paul says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, right? The thing hidden, the tucked away, God has accomplished and kept to himself, now revealed to the world, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We are that church. We are that thing that the Lord kept hidden that was going to be a light to the Gentiles. Now the world is seeing the church that Jesus Christ is creating. 49.7 Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nations abhors, to the servant of of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord, who is faithful, holy one of Israel, and He has chosen you, uh, you know all believers chosen by God, Israel chosen by God, you know Jesus, the chosen one, spoken of by the Lord, all hated by the nations in the world, now Jesus clearly hated, we know that. For certain, he makes that statement on the Sermon on the Mount of how, oh man, if they hate me, they're going to hate you for sure. When they hated me first, any of my followers are going to be hated also. Why? Because of our faithfulness to the Lord. No other reason. We were having a conversation last night about a situation where an individual is very angry and hateful towards another individual. And as we talked about it, the person who is hated hasn't done anything to the person who hates them. Nothing. It's just a conviction of the Holy Spirit. I think every one of us knows what that's like. You get around certain people, you don't have to say boo to them about your faith at all. They're just constantly convinced that you somehow hate them and are judging them. You don't have that going on in your heart at all. Jesus didn't have that going on in his heart at all. It's it's what some today refer to as a witness of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit within us is convicting them. And so, therefore, in that end, we are actually bringing guilt to their heart. You know, just by simply refusing to do the things that they do. I don't know how many times. You know, I've just... Destroyed the celebration by saying, Oh, no, sorry, I don't drink. You know, and suddenly everybody who now has a drink in their hand is, you know, overwhelmed with conscience about, Oh, goodness, there's a teetotaler or Christian amongst us. Whatever will we do? Whatever you were doing five minutes ago. You know, say, I'm not here for that. Jesus makes that statement, right? Or it's made about him, John chapter 3. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. The Holy Spirit brings conviction, but Jesus was never doing that, yet they hated him. Hated him, why? Because they were living in sin. The world's going to hate us. Thus says the Lord, at an acceptable time, I have heard you, verse 8, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages that you may say to the prisoners, go forth, and to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. So before we move on to that, this this idea of the Messiah is a gift. And he's given, he's presented as something that's going to affect change. He's this covenant, and he's going to restore the earth and deliver people from bondage. You know, this isn't just that he's going to come to for instance, the nation of Israel in their captivity and set them free, he's going to set people free from their addiction and from their sin and and from the things that have held them in bondage. It's such a painful thing to do jail ministry sometimes and see the honesty in certain people as you talk to them about Walking with the Lord when they get out of jail. And and you see the realization that, oh, darn it, I'm probably not going to do that. You literally watch the expression change. You know, they're in Bible study, they're doing well, and they're excited about what you're teaching them. And then then you talk about getting out. And it just, I mean, you can just watch the emotion just, like, stagger (laughs) into despair. It's heartbreaking. They are, you know... Even when they're out free, they're in prison. They're imprisoned in themselves. They have no freedom. I think every one of us in this room knows what that's about. The self-inflicted prison. We find ourselves in. Christ is going to deliver us from that. 49.9 They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. Now, There's a lot of different opinions about what this is meant, but it seems to be saying, he puts some other explanation here, it seems to be saying the idea of places like right now you wouldn't think of as being able to get food when Jesus is... um, you know, ruling on this earth and changes even the earthly environment. Uh, even those remote, desolate places will be uh, fruitful and fulfilling. Is sort of the idea. You know, you could be out in the wilderness or on the highway or up in the the desolate heights, and and yet you'll be able to feed. And you know, as much as he's going to set the prisoners free, he's going to free the earth from the bondage of the curse and sin and and all that is so painful about you know existing. Here. He's going to make a full restoration. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. I will meet, make each of my mountains a road and my highways shall be elevated. Surely these things come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west and these from the land of Sinem. now, um, one of the things that I've read a fair amount about um, in regard to the coming day and the great fruitfulness uh, that the Lord is describing of how when he is the, the, you know the king of the earth and here ruling from his throne, and you know the fruitfulness that will occur as far as even like you plant crops and they're going to yield much larger and much greater numbers than anything is even capable of right now. You think about the way things are described during the millennial reign, you almost think, like, how would that be possible? Um, one of the things that's been done, uh, they've, they've found amber samples that um, have encapsulated... The Earth's environment in them. So, the oxygen and nitrogen content of the planet that were there at the time those things were being formed, it's trapped in the amber. Then, you know, not that they can like release it and let out the same amount of oxygen, but they can see how it was trapped and are able to understand that as best they can tell, uh, the oxygen in this atmosphere at some point may have been 50% greater. So 50% greater oxygen would make it such that no one would have breathing problems. Asthma wouldn't exist. You know, even if you had restricted airflow, uh, the the greater oxygen would make it so that you could breathe well. It would also help the healing of your asthma. But the bigger point is uh, running would leave you in a place where you wouldn't even get winded. Fifty percent greater oxygen. You know what's what's going on? Why you get winded, why we get exhausted and sweat so hard is because your body's doing tremendous things to get the oxygen through your lungs into your bloodstream and to the places that it needs to be. If you got fifty percent more oxygen, then that happens effortlessly. So literally uh, running would be the obvious choice of transportation. You've got to go somewhere, just run there. You say, I'm terribly out of shape. If there's 50% more oxygen in the atmosphere, you wouldn't hardly notice. You'd be able to run and have a conversation. Literally, talk to the person that's running with you. Want to go to Bangor? Shore, And we just take off running. And we're there 45 minutes later and talking as we ran. You know, the capabilities, the, you know what we're seeing described I'm not trying to say that's definitely the way things are. I'm saying that we have strong indicators, you know, asparagus ferns that are 15 feet tall, you know, you know, fossilized, you know, fruit from plants that you know is six and eight times larger than what's being produced today by those same plants. You got scientists today who've taken a single tomato plant and taking that concept. And developing systems that will push fifty percent greater oxygen and nitrogen mixture into the root system and the leaf structures of the plants, and a single tomato plant is, you know, now produced somewhere in the neighborhood of like ten ton of tomatoes. One plant. The capability, the fruitfulness, you know, where we are, all of creation is under the curse, experiencing the pain. Of the fall into sin. You know, this promise of the Lord that things are going to change. You're going to be able to feed on the roadways. You know, where people used to go hungry, there's going to be no hunger and no thirst. And people are going to be, you know, able... The mountains will be like smooth highways. It's it's not going to be laborious to travel up over mountains, to go to different locations. The earth itself is going to be changed in the process you know and then that statement of they shall come from afar now sinem is wildly debated about where it's located and all the different locations two of the best explanations are perhaps a location in egypt the other one is perhaps that sinem is a reference to china so what the lord is saying he tell he tells us what he said we don't have to Yes, they're gonna come from afar. The people that worship the Lord are gonna be drawn in. First, obviously, Israel, but the whole world is gonna come once Jesus is the you know the king of the earth, and they're gonna to travel to Jerusalem to worship him. So, sing O heavens, verse 13, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people. I'll have mercy on his afflicted. You know the promise of deliverance of the nation of Israel from Babylon, but also you know, his comfort that he's brought to us as the New Testament church, and you know the believers who have seen these things fulfilled. But Zion said, "The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me." So Israel has that attitude because of what it's going through, that God has somehow forsaken them. And that's you know, groups of Jews and Gentiles say that about Israel. Oh, if God was ever involved, he's not now. He's done with them. You know, hey, look at World War II. Look at all they went through. Look at what they're going through now. Oh, the whole thing's a sham. You know, now Christ is focused on the church not on it. all of that's untrue. Christ is still very distinctly focused on Israel and what's going there. When you you read this and it's making this promise about how the Lord is going to bring them in and gather them, you read very old commentators who are replacement theology and they're saying, no, no, this, this now has to be applied to the church. These things can't mean you know, a reference to Israel. If they do, then he's only saying that about what went on with their captivity in Babylon and how he gathered them back. And the others, who I would say were closer to the Lord writing a few hundred years ago, are saying this is an evidence that Israel has to become a nation for the second time. And they were mocked for that. And now, who's laughing, right? Israel is a nation. And, you know, this week had to They've shut down its embassy in Jerusalem. That's cool. Because <laughs> it's the first time they've had to shut it down in Jerusalem. You know, it was in Tel Aviv previously. And now it's where it belongs in their capital city. And their circumstances of security were such that they had to close the embassy. It was kind of cool. They opened it up shortly after that. It's there. The things that the Lord has said fulfilled in front of her eyes. Forty nine fifteen, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget. So what the Lord is saying is that's not natural for a woman to forget her own children. What well, he's saying, Well I suppose it's possible you're you know, sinful people, and today It's a lot more likely than it was even, you know, a number of years ago. The natural affections of parents are even being forgotten and lost. So God does that. You know, could this be? Well, I suppose it could be. You are sinful people. So even if it is possible, yet I will not forget you. I'm not a human being. I'm not prone to that type of weakness and failure. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Uh, Quite remarkable that that's said, right? That those uh, marks are there. Your walls are continually before me. Your sons shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes. Look around and see all these gathered together and come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourself with them all as one ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. These that come to worship with Israel and follow their example are going to be an ornamental beauty to the nation as they draw people to God. 49.19 For your waist. And desolate places in the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. So, um, you know, very few people surviving the captivity and then released to go back into the land. And the place is just absolutely desolate. You know, um the places that are inhabited are small uh the places that were previously inhabited are all destroyed and laid waste and God is saying, no, we're gonna change that all around you're gonna get back there and you're gonna think, oh well, we just got the whole country to renovate and refill, and we'll probably never run out of space. you're gonna turn around he's saying and find that you're taking you know dumps and bad locations and swamps and converting them to livable space because there's going to be so many of you. You Right now, land is a very precious commodity in Israel and they prize it very highly. If you're going there um, to live, there's all kinds of requirement that has to be agreed upon before you can become part of that nation because of the square footage problem. It's a really small location, and lots and lots of people want to be there. That's a beautiful picture. To a place that was so desolate that Mark Twain said, having traveled for an entire day, he'd seen nothing but rock and dirt and goat. <laughs> you know, And now look at it, third largest producer of food in the world. You know, amazing infrastructure, beautiful cities, just absolutely glorious nation. You know, so, here, even what's desolate, you know, those things are going to be occupied. The children you will have after you have lost the others will say again in your ears, The place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. Then you will say in your heart, Who has begotten these for me? Since I have lost my children and i am desolate a captive and wandering to and fro who has brought these up there i was left alone but these where were they you know lose their homeland lose their children lose their families convinced that that isolation and captivity in babylon was the end for them families over family names gone children snatched away from us, you know, as a people, we're done. And then God brings them back into the land and their tribes are reformed and their family names are given back to them. And the realization of like, how on earth did this happen? How did we get all these children? How did we get these people? How did this all happen? God gave them back to you. Christ gave them back to you. His blessing will seem to come out of nowhere when they're examining it this way. 49.22, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations. That's quite a thought. You know, if somebody takes a vow, you take your wedding vows. That's a pretty serious thing to stand up in front of people and make that type of promise. You stand in court, swear to tell the truth, you can get in big trouble. Big trouble for lying under oath. Taking an oath is supposed to be a radically serious thing. This is God, who should never be asked to take an oath, saying, I'll stand and testify. I'll raise my hand. You think some other person's word is sure and trustworthy, you wait till I stand up and declare a thing. That's what God is saying here. In this moment, I'll I'll raise my hand and an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall... Bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you and their faces to the earth, and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. You know, lick up the dust of the feet. Just... Great respect and reverence is what's being implied. For a people, Israel, who have been rejected, abused, and now taken into slavery, God is saying there's a coming day where the whole world's going to bow down before you. Kings are going to carry your children home for you. Queens are going to tend to your children. That's a remarkable thought. You think about what's said about the prophets, right, or even godly people, but particularly the prophets in the book of Hebrews, how they were homeless and abused and sawed in half and hated by the world, and the world wasn't even worthy of them. Uh, The the great glory that comes from God. 49, 24, shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of the righteous be delivered. When the Lord declares a thing, You know, the captives, no one's going to take them away from from what the Lord has declared to be a certain way. If God says, I'm going to take certain people captive or set them free, no one's going to be able to interfere with that, is what he's saying. It says in verse 25, But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible be delivered, for I will contend with him who contends with you, and I will save your children. You can't take anything away from God, but if God wants to take something away from you, he'll just do it. You can't contend with him, but he'll contend with you. He'll make sure that what he said does occur. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood, as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The Lord turns the table right around and says, You know, I've told you that you're going to experience cannibalism. The siege is going to come on you so hard that by the time it's done and you're taken away from captivity, the Lord says, You're even going to eat your own children. Horrible as a thing as That is to even describe, and then the Lord here is saying, and I'll turn that around on your enemies. The ones who have done you wrong, the ones who have taken you away, they will fall under the same oppression. They will fall under the same severity and eat their own flesh and drink their own blood. It's going to be a horrible state of existence. Justice, you know, will be served. This was true for Zion uh, when. Freed from Babylon in captivity, it is even more true for those set free uh, from captivity of Satan. Jesus spoke of spoiling Satan in Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 21. He said, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes, Upon him and overcomes him, he takes away from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. All the pain and difficulty that Israel and we as followers of God experience in this world, God is going to turn that around on our enemies. He's going to make them go through what they try to put us through. It's not easy to see when we're going through it. What we can understand is God has promised it to those of us who are his children and his followers. If we can find it in our heart to live by faith and trust that, then we get to see these things fulfilled as God accomplishes them. So we'll pick up at 50 uh, next week. Uh, Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you that we're able to have this Bible study, the freedom, the location, the ability to be here together. I pray that you would bless us for having done this, that our hearts would hold to your promises, hold to your fulfillments, that we would long to see the further and future things fulfilled, accomplished. Help us to be men and women who hold to your word, expectantly waiting for fulfillment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.